I'm the campus minister with RUF, Reformed University Fellowship at Boise State. Oh, by the way, uh, if you'd like to, uh, I got some new like prayer card things out in the foyer, foyer. Um, for if you want to stick it in your Bible, it has ways you can pray for RUF on there. Anyway, if you want to grab one of those, um, we cherish your prayers, that's for sure. So we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 4 this morning, because why not, right? Um, no, really, honestly, the reason we're looking at it is because I think that it's incredibly helpful for us. I think that we actually need to see the pictures that this passage presents us with. Uh, we worked through the book of Revelation in RUF this past semester on, in our Tuesday night meetings. And usually when I would tell people that we were working through Revelation, the question I would get, the response I would get is, why in the world would you do that? And uh, the answer, two reasons, two main reasons at least. The first one being that most students, and I imagine a lot of you, um, feel like the Bible is kind of just inaccessible and not very practically usable for our day-to-day lives. And so we just don't use it that much. And I was thinking, well, what could I give to students to maybe convince them that they actually can use the Bible? I thought, why not go to the most notoriously strange and difficult book and show them they actually can use this. And if you can use this, maybe you can use the other 65 books as well. But more importantly, the reason I wanted to study Revelation is because it is incredibly practical. It is really, really useful for our day-to-day lives because regardless of the spooky aura that kind of surrounds the book of Revelation, regardless of the fact that it comes with the reputation of being weird and confusing, it's actually given to us by God. God gave us this book. And he gave it to us not to confuse us, but to actually clarify things for us, to make things understandable. And the way he does that is not, he doesn't give us some secret code that we need to decipher. He doesn't give us some puzzle that we need to figure out. He gives us pictures, and he gives us a, he, he pulls back the curtain. He unveils reality for us. He show, the goal of Revelation is not to hide things, but to show us things. And in particular, to show us Jesus, to show us the Lamb. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ is the way the whole book begins. And of course, one of the dangers of preaching a sermon from Revelation, especially just one on a Sunday, would be the it's tempting to want to over overqualify everything and over explain every little detail. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to try not to do that. And uh, I'm also, there are going to be plenty of details that we read that I'm going to skip right over, and that's on purpose, and it's not because they're not worth focusing on. This is an attempt to get at the the core of what this passage is wanting to teach us. So, just to orient our minds toward what we're about to hear as I read for us, uh, ask yourself this one question. What is it that most frequently leaves me feeling disoriented? lost in the Christian life? What is it that leaves me most frequently saying, you know, this is not exactly what I picture the Christian life looking like or feeling like. I thought I was following Jesus, so how did I end up here? It could be anything. Uh, Maybe for you it's some particular struggle that just doesn't seem to end. Uh, You are constantly frustrated at how slow and how painful the growth and sanctification process is. Uh, You have this picture in your head of the victorious Christian life, and then you look at your own life, and it's frustrating and discouraging, and you feel disoriented. For some of you, it's just something profoundly hard and sad or anxiety-inducing that you are walking through right now. 
You feel like you've been blindsided by the absolute worst that life has to offer, and you feel disoriented. For some of you, it's a difficult relationship. For some of you, you're just lonely, or you're depressed, or you're anxious, and you feel like this is disorienting. This is not what I expect the Christian life to look like. So where do you feel disoriented? Where do you feel like you need clarity? And then ask yourself the question, what do I think would best give me that clarity that I need? What would most help me feel reoriented? Again, the goal of Revelation is to pull back the curtain on reality, to show us, to unveil to us what's really going on, to make sense of our present situation. And it does that by showing us the realer, truer reality that lies in the background, right behind all of the stuff that's right in front of our faces that's so distracting to us. It's almost as if God says with the book of Revelation, do you need clarity? Well, then you need to see this. With that in mind, let me read this passage for us, and then I'll pray, and we'll take a look at it together. This is God's word. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Let's pray before we take a look at this together. Father in heaven, we do thank you that you do not stand far off, but you draw near to us, that you make yourself known to us. We confess that we have a hard time knowing you, and we still find you mysterious at times. We ask that this morning you would make yourself clear to us through your word. We need your help if we are going to understand this, and we need your help if we're going to apply it to our lives, we ask that you would, by your Spirit, shape us through your word today and use the words of your servant to do so. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so if you're lost, 
like actually practically lost and you know and like physically you don't know where you are what's the most helpful tool it would be a map correct you could use a gps i think that's cheating i'm not a gps fan um I have had a lifelong love of maps. I'm a map nerd, I believe, probably. Um, I have very fond memories of childhood, sitting on my bedroom floor with my parents' World Atlas, this huge book, just sitting there wondering, daydreaming about these magical-sounding places called, like, uh, Mexico (laughs) and uh, Antarctica. And um, so my all-time favorite type of map, which certifies me as a map nerd if I have a favorite. My favorite would be a topographical map with all the details of the contours of every hill, every valley. Um, and they're highly technical. Topo maps are super technical if you, if you know maps. And they, they, they have every little detail. And so if you had a map spectrum, a, map, a spectrum of map technicality, this doesn't exist. There's no such thing as a map spectrum. But if there was, over here you might have topo maps with all their details and all their technical stuff. And over here on the other end would be the thing that they hand you when you walk into Disneyland, right? It's just a cartoon. It's just a picture with a big castle in the middle and some pathways around it. And I think there's a mountain and I think there's a rocket. And it's been a long time. I don't know. Um, And it's not technical at all. It's really just a picture. But it's incredibly helpful, isn't it? You know how to get places. Um, in one sense, all of Scripture is kind of like a map for us for reality. Um, and there are some portions of Scripture that are very technical and very detail-oriented. And there are other parts of Scripture that are more picturey and imagey that want to give us a sense. All of them are given to us to orient us to reality. And some of us prefer very technical, detailed things, and that's what our brain sort of resonates with the most. And others of us really appreciate the picturey, cartoony type of images, uh, that kind of orientation. That's what Revelation is. I've heard it described as theology for visual learners. The way it communicates to us is it just piles picture upon picture and image upon image to not so much teach us some new theology, but to drive home the truths that every other, all the other 65 books have been trying to convince us about up until the book of Revelation. And then it wants to drive those truths deep into our hearts by showing us pictures and giving us images. That's the goal of Revelation. And so, um, well, it's important to keep in mind who this book was given to as well. Who, is, who has God given these pictures too. It was first written to churches, to Christians who were in the Roman Empire, specifically these seven churches that are in what is now Turkey. Um, And we are jumping in to this passage here right after these seven churches have been introduced to us. Um, And it's amazing. They're introduced to us from Jesus' perspective. He writes letters to them. We get to read them. And what we find in Jesus' analysis of these people is they're a mixed bag. Um... Some of the things in their lives, Jesus commends them for. And then there's a lot of other stuff that he rebukes them for. They're a mixed bag. They're a lot like us. Then there are other things in their life that are just plain painful. It just hurts, including for them, systematic persecution at the hands of the Roman government. It was a very realistic possibility that the future these people were looking forward to was losing property, losing their jobs, losing their family, maybe losing their own life. Uh, These are people who just like us, are both hurting and broken. There's both from within themselves. They are dysfunctional people with dysfunctional hearts 
with dysfunctional relationships, and they are hurting because of things coming at them from outside, because they're people living in a broken world where horrible things happen. And that's disorienting. And Jesus says, here's what you need to see. This is the first thing that they are shown after they are introduced to us. Uh, They are shown the throne room. Here, it's actually all of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Uh, and look, verses 1 and 2, it is, is John, the Apostle John, who's writing this down, is being invited into the throne room. And those to whom he is sending this book and us along with them are being invited with him to see the throne room of God with the expectation that seeing this is going to change things for them. That seeing this is going to reorient them to reality. It's going to change the way we experience life in this hurtful, fallen world. And it's as if God is saying, if you are a mixed bag uh, who finds life in this world at times incredibly disorienting, you need to see this. And there's two things I want us to see. There's a ton more than two things, but there are just two things I want us to see. The first is, where is the throne? And the second is, what is happening at the throne? Pretty simple outline. First, where is the throne? What's happening at the throne? Uh, So first, where is the throne? Uh, This is important. It's at the center. It's in the middle. I don't know if you noticed that when I was reading it, but this is essential for understanding this picture. Look at at how the scene is set up. Everything in this passage is described in relation to the throne. Everything is either described as around the throne or before the throne or coming from the throne. The throne is at the center. It's it's set up almost like a bullseye, really. Uh, You have the throne at the center in verse 3. It says, around that throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Verse 4 says, around the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on those thrones were 24 elders. And verse 6, around the throne, beyond that, on each side of the throne are four living creatures. We'll come back to them. And then the scene keeps going into chapter 5, which we read together earlier, uh, where beyond that we have myriads of myriads and thousands upon thousands of angels, and then beyond that it says is all of creation. And here's the point. The throne of God is at the center of everything. That's what we're supposed to see. The entire universe centers on the throne room of God. Not physically, But we are talking about, if you could pull back the curtain on our day-to-day experiences, if you could pull back the curtain on everything that's happening right in front of your face, and in in the world, big picture stuff, and details of your own life, what you would see if you could pull back the curtain is that at the center of all of it is a throne. And notice, because this is important, it's not just a throne. There is one who is seated on the throne. There is a king who is ruling. There is a king who sits in authority over everything. He's actively ruling. This is a picture of God as he reigns and rules over and orchestrates and ordains everything in human history, everything in the entire universe, every molecule, every atom, every life. There is nothing that does not fall under his kingly authority. It's a picture of absolute authority. But it's not just a picture of absolute authority. It's a picture of authority and power. Because what good is authority if you have no power? Look at verse 5. 
What a vivid picture. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. I don't know how close you've ever been to lightning. We don't get as much of it here in Idaho as we do in Georgia where I grew up. I'll just say I've been as close as I ever care to be. Plenty close. This is a picture of raw, unmitigated, earth-shaking power. But it's not just that God is powerful, and it's not just that God is in control. He is also beautiful. I don't know if you noticed this. This isn't how we usually think about God. Verse 3, He who sat on the throne had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. You know, right? Jasper and carnelian. Just kidding. Um, those are precious jewels that we don't really see these days in America. This is, these are precious jewels. He, that's what he looks like. If I, he, John is saying, if I could describe what he looks like, the best I can do is the beauty of precious jewels. Here's the point. There is a king, and he is seated on the throne, ruling actively, and he is breathtakingly beautiful and unimaginably powerful, and his throne is at the center of everything. His throne is at the center of the realest, truest reality. In other words, if you could unveil, pull back the curtain on all the stuff that's right in front of your face this morning, if you could pull back the curtain on everything that leaves you feeling lost and disoriented and hoping for a certain amount of clarity, whether it's stuff in world events or stuff in your own lives, stuff in your relationships, stuff in your future that you can't picture where it's going, if you could pull back the curtain on that, what you would see is that at the very center of all of it is a throne, and on the throne is a king, and he is indescribably powerful and in control, and he is beautiful. Which answers the question, does it not, where was God when? All right, it's a question we all ask at one point or another. Where was God at 9-11, where was God in Katrina? Where was God when that thing happened in my life? Where was God when that person hurt me in ways that I will never get over? Where was God when that thing was happening in my life? The answer is, he was sitting on his throne. And that raises a ton of questions. <laughs> Um, and those are questions that the Bible very clearly answers, both here in Revelation and elsewhere. We're not going to get into them this morning because I think the point that we are uh, encouraged to see is that he was sitting on his throne. Look, the thing is, seeing this picture of God, seeing God seated on his throne at the center of everything, it doesn't necessarily change the situation you're in, Right? It doesn't fix all of the problems that you walked in here with. But doesn't seeing that picture at least reframe things a little bit? Change the way you see it? Question worth asking yourself, if you haven't ever asked yourself this question. What if I'm not the center of the universe? Uh, what if I'm not even the center of my own life? There's this great quote from the late David Foster Wallace, a famous writer in a, what is from, this is from a now famous commencement address that he gave at Kenyon University back in 05. Uh, he said, everything in my own immediate experience 
supports my deep belief that I am the absolute center of the universe. The realest, most vivid, and important person in existence. He's saying we can't help the fact that everything that happens, that we experience, happens in relation to us. It's either around us or in front of us. Um, But what if that's completely wrong? What if we have the wrong perspective? What if your life is not, in fact, the thing that all of this orbits around? What if it's not about you? What if your relationships, the people that God has providentially put in your life, what if that's not actually about you, that you're not that the center of that? What if your family is not about you? What if your time is not about you, the way you spend your weekends, your job, that project you're stressed out about? What if it's not about you? What if your future is not about you, your plans, your hopes, your dreams for your family, for marriage, for your career? If there is, at the center of everything, a throne, and on that throne is a king, and everything in the universe, including your life and my life, orbits around him and is under his control, then doesn't that begin to reframe the way we think about the stuff in our own lives, our relationships, our jobs, our sexuality, our dreams, our hopes for the future? I think it ought to. In fact, if this is true, then doesn't it make sense that everything would necessarily begin to fall apart when we try to force our lives into orbiting around everything else? Like, no wonder this doesn't work when I begin to make something else the center. Okay, so that's where the throne is. It's at the center. Second, what's happening at the throne? This is, the simple answer is worship. That's what's happening. This is a picture, everything from verse 6 onward is a picture of the entire throne room bursting out in this loud, in the loudest, most joyful worship service that you could ever picture. That's what's going on. Now, I don't have time to, fo- to look at these uh, 24 elders. I wish I did. They're fascinating. Talk to me after if you want to get, get your mind blown. Um, but uh, I do want to look at these four living creatures because that's really the, the crazy part, isn't it? Um, Look at verse 6. It says, Around the throne there are these four living creatures, and it says that they are entirely covered in eyeballs. (laughs) Like living, blinking eyeballs on the outside and on the inside. I can't picture that. It says one is like a lion. It's not a lion, but it's like a lion. One is like an ox. One with with a face like a man, and one like an eagle in flight. Each of them has six wings. This is crazy, right? Um, What a picture. Okay, what's going on here? This is Revelation's version of super powerful, super important angels. Why do I say that? Um, Well, one of the reasons that Revelation is incredibly challenging for a lot of people is because to understand the pictures that Revelation shows us, you need to be familiar with your Old Testament. Most of us aren't very familiar with our Old Testament. But these four living creatures are drawing directly from the prophecies of both Ezekiel and Isaiah, where we are shown cherubim and seraphim that are what? They're these four living creatures. And it turns out angelic beings aren't necessarily these chubby little babies with wings. They are huge, powerful, terrifying, glorious creatures. 
But don't get lost in the details because that's easy to do. Here's the point. Whatever these things are, they are powerful and they are awesome. And if you were standing in front of them as John was, you would be in awe, if not absolute terror. And the point that we're supposed to see is that these overwhelming otherworldly creatures are bowing down and worshiping the one who's seated on the throne. Verse 8, day and night they never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. All right, how does this help us? You're like, I've got work tomorrow. Um, I, uh, I've heard someone describe it like this, and I found it helpful, and you will either find it helpful or incredibly distracting. One of the two. Um, I am not saying that aliens exist. I'm not saying that necessarily, that there are extraterrestrials. I have no horse in that race. But I'm going to ask you to imagine for a moment that they did exist. And imagine that they came and visited Boise. Now, usually the way these things are depicted is like these little skinny, lanky things with smooth skin and big eyes, and they're just kind of weird. And you see the pictures, and you're like, okay, I get the whole superior intelligence thing, but let's be honest, I could beat you in pretty much any sport. So... I'm not that impressed. Now, but imagine instead that these creatures are built like the most elite athletes you can imagine. And then imagine that they're covered in armor. And then imagine that they're the size of the tallest building in Boise. All right, you got the mental picture? What happens if the very first thing they say is, glory be to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to his son, Jesus Christ. Like, hold on. <laughs> like, I thought, you know, that you guys, I don't, if something that powerful and that otherworldly says, I owe everything to God, and he is worthy of all of my worship, wouldn't that begin to make us rethink things a little bit? Wouldn't that kind of reframe the way we see the stuff that's going on in our lives? Like, you know, oh, God, that's what you meant when you said you were in control of everything. Oh, that's what you meant when you said you created everything that exists and you ordain everything that happens for your glory and for your purposes. That's fictional. That's made up. I'll be clear on that. Here's something that really did happen one day. There were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. And the angel says to these shepherds, Hey, guess what? The Messiah has come. And you can go and see him. And all of a sudden, they are surrounded by an army of these things, these burning, shining messengers of God. The paintings always depict them as in the sky, maybe holding a banner or something. It doesn't say that. It says they were surrounded by these creatures. And what do they say? They say, glory to God in the highest. So these shepherds go, and they do what the angel said, and they find the baby lying in the manger. 
And then I love that Luke includes this little detail. He says, they returned to their field glorifying and praising what? Angels? No, God. Right? You could almost picture them out in their field later that night, probably any other given night for the rest of their life, sitting around their fire saying, all I know is if God is bigger than they are, then he is amazing. He is it. So when we read about these four living creatures here in Revelation chapter 4, we're not supposed to be asking, you know, I wonder what their DNA structure looks like. Um, We are supposed to say, if they bow down to him, if they thank him for everything that they have, then God must be amazing beyond anything my imagination could ever possibly come up with. What is it that you picture your life orbiting around? Because inevitably it's going to be that thing that you find most amazing, most beautiful, most awe-inspiring, whether that's a person or a relationship or stability or, or affirmation that you long for or a goal that you're pursuing. Whatever it is that you find most beautiful and most awe-inspiring, that is necessarily the thing that you will worship. That is necessarily the thing that you say your life orbits around because worship is simply saying you are it you are the center let me close with this it's hugely important we're missing the whole thing if we miss this Uh, one look at this place this scene this throne room our instinct ought to be I really shouldn't be here you know I long for this in the deepest, truest part of my being, but I, at the same time, I know that I have no right to be standing before that throne and that king. Because there's something else these four living creatures ought to remind us of. It ought to remind us of Eden, the cherubim that were set outside of Eden, guarding the way back when God says, because of your sin and your rebellion, you may not enter And it's supposed to remind us of the Holy of Holies, the very center of the temple where God's glory dwelt. And on the curtains were what? Cherubim. These flying creatures guarding the way to God's glorious presence. Where he is seated on where? Do you know your Old Testament? On the mercy seat at the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was what? Cherubim's wings. Except, verse 1, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, which we heard back in chapter 1, which is the voice of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, that voice saying, come up here. I want to show you something. You and I have no right in and of ourselves to enter this throne room. But if Christ invites us, if Christ himself ushers us in, if Christ himself says, you may come in on my credentials. Psalm 24 asks the question, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? Here's the answer. He who has clean hands, 
and a pure heart and who does not lift up his heart and center his life around that which is false. In other words, not you, not me. Jesus. Jesus flashes his ID and he says, he's with me. She's with me. Where I go, they go. Everything that I have a right and a privilege to because of who I am and what I have accomplished, they have a right and a privilege to. How can he do that? It's because everything that makes us unworthy, everything that makes us unable to enter this place that we were most created to be, was placed on Jesus at the cross. He paid our debt. He ransomed us by his blood. He cleansed us. And now he ushers us in to the very presence of the glory of God on his merits. I wish, honestly, so badly that we could keep going on into Revelation 5 because the scene continues. But what we see immediately following this, which we read earlier, is a lamb. We see a lamb standing. It's alive, although it had been slain. And these four living creatures start singing. And they say, Worthy are you, O lamb, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God to live in his presence. And all of creation worships. Worships. 